Hello, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. This is a very special episode in which we are collaborating with the brand new Tapestry Radio podcast, Shakespeare in the Village, looking ahead to the 2023 summer season of the Shakespeare in the Village performance, we will be putting on Much Ado About Nothing. And so uh, Ethan and I will be discussing the play Much Ado About Nothing with the host of Shakespeare in the Village podcast, Risha Lilienthal, and our very good friend Lydia Grabau will be hopping on as a special guest as well. So enjoy this. And if you like this podcast and all the information about Shakespeare in the Village, check out that podcast as well on tapestryradio.org. So, yes, uh, I, my name is Michael Lilienthal, and with me is my sister, Risha Lilienthal. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> uh, also with me on the other side of the room and the other side of the country and the other side of the world well, is Ethan Bartlett. We're like one state away, but... <laughs> the other side of the world. Yeah. It's so far. So far. The other side of the <laughs> so Mississippi, anyway. True. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, like... You can't. You can't cross that. Who no, can cross it's, that? It's impossible. Yeah, that's I, right. That's right. I did it. And then sitting next to Ethan is a very special <laughs> guest, Lydia Grabau. Hello. And we are here uh, on this very special uh, episode to discuss the play "Much Ado About Nothing" by William Shakespeare. Um, before we get into the the particulars of that play, though, I want to ask, what's everybody drinking? What are you drinking? I am drinking uh, Madeira, um, which is a type of wine found on the island of Madeira. Uh, The current bottling I'm drinking is Rainwater Medium Dry Madeira by uh, Miles, which I'm sure is not said that way, because Madeira is an island, I believe, off of Portugal. Mm. Um, Sounds right. It's a very old uh, style of wine. It's its own unique style. Um, they're always drinking Madeira in Dickens novels, and so like anytime mm-hmm. I'm feeling yeah. particularly Dickensian, uh, <laughs> or just like gloomy or British or forlorn, so every day, so every day I do kind of want to reach for a bottle of Madeira, um, <laughs> and I just happened to have one That's for right. this recording, and seemed like the seemed like the thing. Uh, so here we are. <laughs> it's a very um, the thing. Madeira is a very it's kind of port-esque in that it's like a fortified wine. It's fairly strong and has that kind of strong porty flavor, but usually not as sweet as we tend to think of port being. Mm-hmm. Kind of if you if you imagine like a halfway point between port and sherry, it's it's kind of somewhere in there. But it does smell like gotcha. olives. And I stand <laughs> by that. Yeah. It's got this one. <laughs> I have I have no objection to that description. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um this one has kind of a kind of a I'd say like a raisiny note and some like stone fruit and they're often kind of stone fruit centric flavor wise. Um Gotcha. It tastes like something you would drink in like an old library with a lot of leather bound volumes and two stories and you know, the the Bell fantasy uh library. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, there's a a Carol Burnett show where uh, there's a person on there that came and was doing a whole like monologue and poem deal. And he, I I heard you say that word and it just popped into my head because he keeps repeating the phrase, have some Madeira, Madeira. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Excellent. It's good. Good. Lydia, what are you drinking? I am having, if I say this wrong, I, I know you're going to roast me, so I'm just going to swing for it. Shield Egg Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. It's a Speyside. Aged 12 years. Uh, recent listeners to Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch will not recognize this pod, this uh, scotch at all. But No, of course not. I told Lydia that on special episodes of our show, people don't have to drink scotch, and she insisted mm-hmm. on drinking mm-hmm. scotch. Look, so, so I was hurt. I want to have a full podcast experience, and frankly, I might resent you a little bit for not also 
freaking scotch right now. Yeah, I was going to resent you either way. So it's all fine. <laughs> it's all right. You're bringing the right, right energy to this, right. this episode. Honestly, bring, bring lots of resentment. It's good. <laughs> Ethan and I sitting in a room together discussing much ado about nothing feels very correct. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, Risha, what are we drinking? We are drinking the Dark and Stormy. Mm. Yes. It has ginger beer Mm. and rum. Technically, we're supposed to... I got to pull my little list out here. Technically, we're supposed to have the uh, Gosling's Black Seal rum. Oh. But I like it better with Kraken. Mm. Why why technically the Gosling's Black Seal? Because that's the original one that was used when this uh, cocktail was created. Oh. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, well, yeah, I know the people that would most like you to have Gosling's Black Seal rum specifically in your Dark and Stormy are the sales representatives of Gosling's Black Seal <laughs> rum. I mean, yes, true. Yes, that's, and we've that's said true. it enough. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, now they do owe us. Yeah, that's yeah, how yeah, advertising yeah, yeah. works. No, this right. feels like a sponsorship, but it's not. <laughs> they could. They could. Well, actually, what we've done is shoot ourselves in the foot for any sponsorship of any other rum mm. distillery. I mean, now, now they won't sponsor us. We can always issue redactions. Right. And that right. is yeah. a threat well, to Gosling's Black just, Seal. Rum. And that is a threat. <laughs> I did just talk up Kraken, though. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Hey, a lot of good and they good evenings mm-hmm. with Kraken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a phrase mm-hmm. you could use. Good Shakespeare evenings with Kraken, even. <laughs> Good Shakespeare. Well, let's get into the Shakespeare. Uh, so we're we're discussing Much Ado About Nothing by by William Shakespeare, um, and I'm gonna say this right off the bat that I've talked enough about this play, so I'm gonna make the rest of you talk about it, uh, and I want to hear some of your opinions about this. Um, I, I understand that just about. All of well, you haven't read the whole thing. You've you've just read the the adaptation that that I made. You're you're holding yes. it up for our listeners to <laughs> to see. Yes, uh, <laughs> the uh, the adaptation of the play that we'll be uh, putting on for Shakespeare in the Village uh, in the summer of 2023. Nice. Um, so you've read that, uh, which is basically the story. I mean, you get you get you're just missing some of the side characters that uh, that have been cut and. Uh, little there's bit. one with a really cool name. What was the one that's the really cool name? Balthazar? Yeah. Yeah, you're sad that I cut Balthazar. Um, so, okay, let's 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 think about that a little bit. Let, talking about the, the characters in here, what do you think, mm. uh, for, for you who have read the play in its entirety, about the cutting of a character like Balthazar? <laughs> My immediate feeling is, it's an inevitability in a Shakespeare play. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, that you, you almost have to cut some, some of these characters out. They're just so the cast is huge. If you were to do this in mm-hmm. its entirety, full runtime, like, woof, that's a big show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you you do have to think about context a little bit. Like, mm. I don't have a problem cutting a play to fit its context. And, you know, Shakespeare, of course, was writing for, in his own context, writing for sort of a, a company of actors. So in, mm-hmm. he wasn't thinking about the needs of, you know, a 21st century theater troupe uh, anywhere, let alone in, you know, particular community or, or college or wherever you're performing it that mm. might have a different number of a, a different style or amount of talent available. Um, mm. And, you know, Shakespeare also freely adapted from his sources to fit his own context. So really it's like mm-hmm. in kind of a tradition. Um, yeah. And of course there's good cuttings and bad cuttings. Like uh, you, you can cut right. a Shakespeare play in such a way that you almost don't notice it or you can cut it in a way that the plot no longer makes any sense and i feel like i've seen both things in action uh before where 
you know, you you have a, a Shakespeare play where you clearly are cutting to either time or a cast cast number, cast the cast list of some kind, but you cut out a character who delivers a key piece of information, and now the climax doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, or I've seen other Shakespeare plays where the parts that were cut out were clearly just like either scenes where people, other cast members were just like cha- costume changing, and you needed just yeah. some filler <laughs> to cover for them, or. Mm-hmm. They were just like asides that were like self-contained and maybe they're good in and of themselves, but right. you don't need them. Or like medieval Brian in the Shakespeare troupe needed a part. So yeah. you just wrote in one that, that has no relevance to the plot. Yeah. 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 Cut um, cut medieval Brian <laughs> right out of there. Yeah. Shakespeare's memoirs, he talks a lot about uh, his neighbor, Brian, who was always asking to be put in plays. And, and he, he sucked. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> so any characters in Shakespeare that just like suck, that was probably Brian. It was Brian, man. That was Brian. Yeah. Also, it's not a very good actor. That Brian. I, wait, what did you mean by? The, the, oh sucked? no, I meant like as a person. Oh, as a he person. was just kind yeah, of bad Brian to be around. Oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. Hey, Brian's out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> So was that kind of what you were um, asking about, Michael? <laughs> More or less, yeah. Um, I, I needed you to to uh, validate my my decision. Oh, I so thought you might, you, you, did you needed us to validate your dislike Admirably. of Brian, but well, that too. I yeah. Um, Brian won't be won't be in this play unless he auditions. He might be. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I really hope the um, Brian auditions. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually know a Brian that is planning to. There Let's go. go. <laughs> Brian, I hope you get the part. Yeah, also as a disclaimer, if you listen to this, you weren't the Brian we were talking about. Yeah, it's medieval it Brian. Yeah, it was medieval Brian. Even medieval though Brian. Shakespeare technically lived in the early modern period. But... Look. Don't sass me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't. We we like contemporary Brian. Contemporary Brian is fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, getting that out of the way now, I, I want to hear what uh, what your thoughts are on the play in general. This one specifically, mm. uh, uh, Much Ado About Nothing by William Shakespeare. Um, uh, like I said, I've talked a lot about this play already, uh, so I want to hear some, some other, other thoughts on its themes, what you like, what you think might be, some difficulties with it, stuff like that. So... Um, uh, let's, let's let Lydia, you go ahead and go first. Tell us what you think about Much Ado About Nothing. I mean, Much Ado is my favorite Shakespeare comedy. Like, it slaps. <laughs> first, just the dialogue is so good. Some of Beatrice and Benedict's mm. back and forth are iconic for good reason. And also just the whole, it's like, the perfect comedy of errors like they dress up in different costumes and they're confused about identities and think that they're stealing each other's girls even the comic characters like dogwood come on dog dogberry dogberry i'm sorry you should be sorry i that's all right look i'm sorry at all times i'm a good minnesotan (laughs) (laughs) but yeah 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 it's all it's a this is a good one Mm-hmm. Ten out of mm-hmm. ten out of ten, Shakespeare, you did it. Ten out of ten. <laughs> well, maybe. Now, I, I do have a question that. about that with the, the the comedy of errors bit because I think you know you're right that there's that comedy of errors going on, people confusing uh, one another for for other people and mm. and such. In terms of some of the the masks that they put on in like the mask ball scene. I, th- this is a, a thought that I've I've had, and I, w- I want your take on it. How believable is it? And, and I don't mean necessarily from an outsider's perspective, mm-hmm. because obviously as the audience, we know who everybody is. But how believable is it that everyone in that realm doesn't know who the other people in the masks are? Oh, it's like not, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry. Like... Right. Everyone <laughs> walks and like smells and has different mannerisms that are specific to themselves. Right. But that's part of the whimsy, I think, of this play. Is like you put on a mask. It's probably not even like a full mask. And they're like, ooh, right. who is it? 
there's an inherent ambiguity in that sequence, mm. um, or even just sort of a, a back and forth about who does recognize who, because I think every version mm. I've seen of that play yeah. um, does it slightly differently in terms of who might actually be confused in the moment versus who is like, oh, mm. you're you're obviously Benedict. Mm. Um, right. So I, I think that like, you know, it, it goes a little bit to directorial interpretation and you can put things onto the text that aren't necessarily there. But I think it, there is there in the text an implication that like, not everyone knows and not everyone doesn't know, but where the line, who's on which side of that line is is made, I have to suspect intentionally sort of obscure. Mm-hmm. I mean, but even the concept well, that even at the end. Beatrice doesn't know who Benedict is because he has a bad accent <laughs> and well, <laughs> a mm-hmm. half mask on. Like, come See, again, on! Like, I've seen it. I've seen versions of the play where it's played as if she absolutely knows the whole time. So when mm. she's bad mouthing him, right? It's like when you know, to his Michael face. and I do right. our show and i'm like who would be that obsessed with vampires like Mm -hmm. it's it seems like a weird fixation (laughs) you you know it's that kind of that kind of vibe and i've seen versions that to me are less believable and less interesting but i have seen versions where she's like oh oh wait that was bennett oh you know and so i think both interpretations Mm -hmm. are kind of available Mm. um to me Mm -hmm. i mean beatrice is the smartest person in every room yeah um i don't even <laughs> think that's a controversial opinion no uh i i so no, like I, specifically I with, with her with and benedict i i think she knows the entire time i think that's very clear um and sure. you could choose to play it otherwise but i think you'd be playing against the against the text in you'd that be wrong. case and would be wrong yeah objectively <laughs> there, there's something in the full text that is is cut from from our version uh, that because I cut the character of Antonio, but it's the dance between Ursula and Antonio, uh, where when they come up for their their pairing and their dance and their dialogue, Ursula says, "I know you well enough. You are Senor Antonio," and Antonio says, "At a word, I am not." And I mean, right there, it's like I know who you are. No, no, right. you don't. <laughs> and I think that encapsulates a lot of what's going on. This whole dance scene is like I know who you are, but I'm going to pretend that I don't. Mm. And <laughs> that that goes on a lot. And then that comes to a head when you get to the point where Don John yeah. comes and talks to Claudio and calls him Benedict, and Claudio goes along with it because that's part of Don John's plot. Right. That that whole pretending not to know. So everyone. Oh kind of has this social contract of, I don't know who anybody is. I, and so we're just going to go along with from that what I know until it becomes convincing. About like mass balls from like roughly this period. I think that was kind of part of the, the whole deal was like, you went to a mass ball and you had to pretend to not know who everyone, like that was sort of, it was, it was like a social contract thing where it was like, this is, you know, mm-hmm. like if you went to a Halloween party or something and pretended not to recognize all your friends, even though you know exactly who they are. <laughs> right. That's so whimsical and cute. Like, <laughs> I, I kind of want to do that now. <laughs> like, send out invitations and be like, come in a costume. You don't know anyone. Yes. Oh, I love that. Well, like, even at the end, I don't want to, again, spoil the 500-year-old play, like you said, (laughs) Um, but it's not even at the ball. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, they come back in masks, and I I even wrote, I, I, like, can I spoil it? No, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so when, (laughs) when Hero comes back, it says, Hero, Beatrice, Margaret, and Ursula, the ladies masked, come back in after, like, Claudio's like, well, crap, I was wrong. This was terrible. Um. And like he's like, sweet, let me see your face. Uh-huh. And it's like he totes knows, like he totally knows that that's her. It's just almost makes it sweeter, and mm. that he's like, wait, <laughs> wait, you know, I don't know. It's like a sweeter moment because he's kind of going along with it, but also wanting her to see her face. It's, I don't know. Sure, it's a sweet thing. Yeah. I think I sure. think it's sweeter if he knows that it's her. Instead of being like, wait, who is this woman? <laughs> mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of romance in committing to a bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you uh, talking about Beatrice, which I, I it's hard. It, anybody, feel free to contradict mm. me. Does right. Does anybody have a character that's that's more <laughs> favorite than Beatrice in this play? No, absolutely not. No, they'd be wrong. Okay. <laughs> like... <laughs> they'd be wrong, right? They'd be absolutely wrong. Um, so now, I, this this is a, a thought that um, I wanted to to bounce around because I read it and I mentioned it um, earlier in the Shakespeare in the Village podcast about uh, Harold Bloom's take on this play mm-hmm. uh, and talking about Beatrice as being exactly what you said, the smartest person in every room that she's in, um, that, uh, that she is... Uh, she rises to the height of one of Shakespeare's best characters, um, and he almost t- makes her um, the, the uh, female Falstaff, but without the buffoonery. Mm. Um, and that's ha- kind of how uh, Harold Bloom takes it. And then, to uh, on the contrary side of that, talking about Benedict as Beatrice's foil, uh, sort of, and uh, he he doesn't think Benedict is quite a match. For Beatrice, mm. not not necessarily a romantic match, but even a match in wit. Um, that he stumbles behind her, uh, and even uh, in Shakespeare's craft, he doesn't rise to where where he thinks Benedict should be. I wonder what what everyone's take is on that. Isn't that kind of his draw to her, though? Go on. Because she is wittier and and has so many more like virtues and things about her that he he even has that huge long speech where he talks about how no woman can measure up mm. and so she had to be for sure even like not even matched she had to be better for him to really want her mm-hmm. i think so you're thinking when he describes like the perfect woman who has all of these virtues in one woman you're thinking that for Benedict, that is Beatrice. Yeah, I think so. I think something that gets lost a lot when people talk about this play, because it's rarely mentioned, though it's always in the background, is the fact that Benedict is a soldier. Mm. Um, so that's the beginning, obviously. That's that's his character introduction. They're, they're coming back from war, essentially. Um, and... I I uh, may be influenced by this because uh, my wife, he, hearing that I was going to be discussing Much Ado, reminded her that she wanted to find the um, David Tennant and Catherine Tate uh, version, which was a was a <laughs> there's a recording of it available, like a like a streaming recording, but it was uh, I think on the West End um, in London. And so she was watching it earlier today as we as we record this, and um, s- specifically some of the scenes between them, I think Tennant really leans into the idea that, like, Benedict is almost uh, not exactly a jock, but, like, the, the <laughs> 17th century equivalent of, like, that stereotype is, mm-hmm. like, his socially, culturally... His job is not necessarily to be witty and educated in the way that someone like Beatrice's mm. job is. His job is to take action and to, you know, it's it's much more about, like, the physicality. So he's playing in her, um, sort of in her arena or whatever when he tries to match wits with her. Mm. Um, mm. So I... Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I think you can see that even later in the... Um, play when the the stuff with hero kind of comes to a head and Beatrice appeals to that about him because she basically I can't I, I don't remember the actual quote but she basically is like Benedict if you actually love me like go take up your sword and fight on my my cousin's behalf I think hero's her cousin um mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. like that's not only where sort of Shakespeare places him but where Beatrice places him and I think some of the tension about the match from her perspective is a, is sort of about like, is he actually witty enough for me versus like, is that actually, do I actually need someone who is like, if she's, if she's got wit locked Mm -hmm. down, in other words, like maybe she needs someone who's 
who has other strengths. Um, so I think like Bloom kind of overstates his case a little bit. Like I don't completely disagree with him, but I think he, cause he has this thesis where he sees, you know, all of these, I mean, he sees Shakespeare's women as much smarter than they should be. Like Juliet is way smarter than she should be. Rosalind is way smarter than she should be from as you like it. Um, mm-hmm. even the girls from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream are very smart. Um, Ophelia is very smart. Uh, so Shakespeare wrote all these brilliant women and, and Bloom has this thesis that Shakespeare cast their male foils as more or less idiots. So like he thinks Romeo is a dumb jock, and, well. <laughs> which is, that one's fair, I think. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, but I think when he gets to, to Benedict, it struck me a little bit that like there's something to it, but he's maybe overstating it when he tries to make Benedict sort of as as much of a a dumb jock as Romeo. Um, but I think there is a paradigm there that's that, that uh, Shakespeare is definitely playing with where, and I, I, I agree on the face of it. I agree with the thesis statement that Beatrice is clearly smarter and wittier than Benedict. Mm-hmm. But like the, I guess the fact sure. that she starts out <laughs> by saying, I need someone who can match, match wits with me because she says that in act one. Um, I'm mm-hmm. suspicious that it's actually true. Because where, where a Shakespeare character starts in Act 1 is usually a starting place that they change from or learn better. Yeah. Especially, oh, mm-hmm. Shakespeare, do be loving to, <laughs> to have a character think they know what they want and yeah. then say, mm, no. <laughs> actually, no. Right, right. So yeah, you're, so how does how does Beatrice then learn that that's not what she wants? I think it's like or by the threat of having it taken away from her, mm. which is sort of that classic romantic comedy trope of like you have to either almost lose the person or think you have lost them before you actually appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's funny. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this on my drive here, how intelligent Beatrice is and who would be a good match for her. Because, of course, I'd be like... <laughs> who of your friends? Or <laughs> look, who in literature? Look, I love to be a matchmaker. <laughs> Lydia is playing matchmaker. As usual, I want everyone to find Beatrice, love I and I want you. to arrange it. <laughs> I mean, that's what a matchmaker is. Literally, yes. It's me. Hello. Um, I'm the problem. Hello, it's me. I am the problem. Yeah, that's that's what T-Swift has to say about that. <laughs> no, but, but what Beatrice needs is not someone who's just as smart as her. Because like you said, it's she's got that unlocked. She needs someone who's a very good companion, right? What she lacks in life mm-hmm. is companionship especially once hero is paired off um and Mm -hmm. in the text it's really demonstrated that benedict is he's a homie (laughs) (laughs) right like everyone around Mm -hmm. him all of his army buddies love him because he's just like a good dude he's a good bud (laughs) and that's what beatrice really needs (laughs) she just needs a good bud for life (laughs) well i think she has probably a lot of abandonment issues like Mm. you said even like with hero too you know she doesn't have her parents right she's an orphan one of the first things you hear her say about benedict too is that he wears his faith but as the fashion of his hat it ever changes with the next block so she's saying he's super fickle he hops Mm. from friend to friend yeah yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's some implication. Uh, I think that they kind of had a dalliance before, and he kind of mm-hmm. dipped. Yeah. Um. And I, you don't get too much of yeah. of that, other than sort of, sort of a few of those just like offhand references. But it does make you wonder what the prequel story would be about their like first right. first uh entanglement what that whatever that would uh entail 
Yeah, it's and I've seen productions where they try to try to fit something of that in there. Um, the Joss Whedon yeah. um, version has just like a silent scene of uh, I, I think it's in in the very beginning of the play too. So it's it's just set up as the foundational prequel to the whole play where they spend the night together and then Benedict walks mm. out uh, while he thinks. Beatrice is sleeping, but then you see she's awake and like notices him leaving, which is, I, I I'm wondering what uh, what he's exactly what Joss Whedon is exactly saying by by making that choice. I mean, um, in that play, but it seems to be kind of the same same idea, this abandonment idea that like he felt he couldn't commit, and so he just left, and that was hard yeah. on her. Essentially, what Whedon way. has it be is just sort of the the like one night stand kind of thing, where mm-hmm. it's like you have a one night mm-hmm. stand, and then he tries to tries to do the the sneak away walk of shame trope or whatever, and of course, right. because she's smart, like she, he doesn't get away with it, which I think is right. a valid is one valid way to read that backstory. Like you could sort of infer sure. something like that happening. Um, but you could infer any number of things, I think. You could infer that maybe they were, you know, maybe there was more of, like, a, a romantic situation, and then if he's going off to war, mm. you know, maybe he did the thing where he was like, I don't want you to, like, I don't want to, like, get engaged and then have you have a fiancé die on the battlefield. I don't want to put you through that or any number of things like that. And, you know, he could have broken it off for much less um, uh Prurient reasons? Is that the word I want? I don't know. No, I don't. Try again. <laughs> no, I, I I know I know I was wrong, but I don't want to try again. <laughs> Less fresh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you got it that, in one. How yeah, did you... that was it. Hey, that was it. Because <laughs> yeah. like I think because they both end up not telling each other that they're in love mm. with each other and hiding it. And so hers, I feel like is the abandonment issues. And I think his might be the whole thing where he knows he's not as smart mm. as her. Mm. I think that might be a big part of it where he's like, she doesn't want me because I can't match wit. I don't it's know. a bit of an in- insecurity there. Yeah. I mean, Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the whole thing, but I think that might be a part of it. I've always wished, because obviously his monologue um, that concludes with one of the best lines in all of Shakespeare, the world must be peopled, mm. um, you know, he, he kind of <laughs> lays out not only his own interiority, but the change, like he goes through the ultimate plot point change through the course of that monologue, starting out by saying, not ever gonna gonna marry anyone. I agree with you that like, I, I think that when he's saying no woman is perfect, he, he's just describing Beatrice. Mm. Um, but, mm. and, and then maybe he realizes that, you know, char- Shakespeare's characters have this way of like talking to themselves and then changing through hearing their own thoughts voiced out loud. Um, but I always have wished that we had the same monologue, but for Beatrice, or yeah, for Beatrice, mm. because. You get it with Benedict, mm. so in a sense, you really get exactly what the change is and what he goes through, but you don't for Beatrice. Her her change is much more subtle, and I think maybe happens more like off stage. So you see the results, and you can kind of infer them, but like you don't have quite as provable, you know, provably laid out exactly where her change comes from, which I think is an interesting choice. I don't know how, but it feels like it probably ties back into the uh, the whole abandonment uh, thing. Like maybe Beatrice is so secretive that she, you know, she doesn't even share her thoughts with the audience or with herself. Mm. That maybe it's it's much more mm-hmm. completely interior. Um, I do think it's interesting too when you think about again Benedict being a soldier and you think about the. Uh, uh, what he says to himself to convince himself that he is not even necessarily good enough for Beatrice, but that he should be with Beatrice, because he he makes this shift to where he talks, he's talking about duty all of a sudden. The world must be people. Like, this, this isn't about mm-hmm. him 
being worthy of someone. It's about him seeing a chance to fulfill a duty like a soldier does and then does. And of course, that's all nonsense. Like, that's all just him fooling himself oh, to yeah. sort of trick himself into, <laughs> you know, letting him letting himself do what he wants. But I do think it's interesting. Right. He's already decided on that course of action. He needs to yeah, validate it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's interesting thinking about Beatrice and how she doesn't have that, that dialogue beforehand and a really short dialogue after she overhears um, or a monologue uh, after she hears Hero and Ursula. You have a thought. I have um, a thought, but it doesn't relate to that. It relates to a word you said, so I will get to it after your thought. All right. All right. Um, we'll, we'll get there then. But I, I, you know, and thinking about this too, and in, in just in, in, general about Beatrice's character, which rightly so, she's taking up a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, but I, I wonder how much of her character is rooted in a need for control, um, uh, kind of a psychological need to to control the outcome, to control what goes on with people. Even when she you know, supports the marriage for a hero, she kind of teases her a little bit about it, but ultimately she thinks this is good. But then uh, she's got this whole thing uh, with Benedict, where she tells him, kill Claudio, you know, right? She, she's turning him into the sword again. Um, and she, she's directing that sword and, and wishing that she could fulfill that role, but she wants Benedict to do that. Uh, and, and he says he's willing, ultimately. He resists it, but he's ultimately willing. But he doesn't kill Claudio, uh, even though he took an oath to do so and, and swore to Beatrice that he would, <laughs> um, that, uh, that he would kill Claudio. But there's, he finds a way around it, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so Beatrice doesn't get that that control in it. And I wonder how much of that has to do with what makes them a good match. That she needs this control and Benedict finds a way to take away her control, but also give her a good outcome. <laughs> I love when the man I love promises to do a murder and then doesn't for me. I mean, to quote another play, all's well that ends well. Right, right. Yeah. What well, what did your what was your thought on this, Risha? On on what word I said. Oh the word it doesn't have to do with anything you oh. said other than the one word. <laughs> you said short. Oh yes. And Shakespeare has a thing with poking fun at short women. Yes, yes he does. Yes, that's that's correct. Did it to Hero. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thinking about Hermia. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. I myself am 411 and 78, <laughs> so and every every one of those eights is important. Yes. Uh <laughs> So you said you said the word short, and I just got to <laughs> Yes. Well, there there is a theory because a lot of Shakespeare's plays have two like female characters. So you got Hamlet with um, mm-hmm. the Queen and Ophelia. Uh, you have Hermia mm-hmm. and Helena in Midsummer, um, and often, especially as uh, Shakespeare gets older, like the two female characters are very intricate and very complex. So there's a theory sort of, uh, because despite what I implied earlier about medieval Brian, like we actually know very little about Shakespeare's <laughs> um, biography and, and his, his life and the people he worked with. We know some things, but not a ton, especially about him directly. But so extrapolating backwards, there's a theory that there were two members of his troop who were really good at playing women Mm. Um, and Mm. you know, the suspicion then would be that one of them was particularly short. So he was writing these short jokes specifically to tease an individual person, uh, which could be better or could be worse depending on your, your perspective, but no, that really aligns with my experience in the theater. Yeah. (laughs) You're writing a part for someone you're absolutely roasting the actor. Yeah. 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 Oh Yes. Yeah, have to. Feels I mean, right. It's, it does. It does. It just fits <laughs> right in. Yes. 
can we can we uh, shift gears and and leave Beatrice for now? We can we can come back to her. Okay, you as, already as we already want. talked about how but, she has um, abandonment issues, and now you're gonna leave her. <gasps> oh, you caught on to that, did you? Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you can. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Let's. I want to talk about another character that interests me because of how interestingly uninteresting he is. And that is the character of Don John. (laughs) So I I see in the play, he's got, he he has two basic plots or two basic plans that he undertakes focused on the character of Claudio through whom he intends to stick it to his brother, the prince, uh, in some way, Don Pedro. Um, what do we think of his plans? In the first plan, he just he talks to Claudio, pretending he's Benedict, and convinces Claudio that Don Pedro is actually trying to win over Hero, which that plot lasts for about four pages. <laughs> and then the other one, Includes Baraccio, who has some fun with Margaret and convinces Don Pedro and Claudio and Benedict. Well, not Benedict. Um, uh, so much. Well, I guess Benedict. Anyway, um, convinces them that Hero is being unfaithful through another tragedy of errors, so to speak. Those are, those are the two plots, and that one lasts a couple of acts before the end of the play. So, what do we what do we think of of his plans? Uh, I think it was in some of the extra features on the Joss Whedon uh, version of Much Ado. Someone called Much Ado Shakespeare's noir comedy. Mm. Um. In the sense that, like, it's it's kind of a dark comedy in in some ways, but like specifically because Don John feels like a character out of film noir, uh, someone who has mm. a vendetta and just has an anger and therefore sets all these plots in motion and kind of doesn't care, a about collateral damage, but b he kind of doesn't care like what the end result is so long as it's bad for the people he hates. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like to put it more in Shakespeare's time, it, he feels like a character out of a revenge tragedy, which was a big genre in Shakespeare's time. Mm. He, but he, it's like, if you took a character from that and then put it into a romantic comedy and it's an odd, um, uh, juxtaposition in some ways, uh yeah yeah it's really weird to have uh so many characters that are so round i mean beatrice just slaps and then to have the villain be like the most (laughs) two-dimensional dude ever his whole thing is like i'm a villain because i'm a villain right (laughs) Mm mm-hmm like that's what we were saying too, yeah. Mhm. Yeah. What were you? Oh, yeah. It just um, the whole villain be- to be a villain thing. Mm-hmm. And as I read, when he comes up, my I, I write <laughs> in the margins, and what I wrote is, "What a sad, sad boy." <laughs> like, <laughs> just <laughs> all I could see is the whole like I know that like teenager Risha would have had a huge oh, crush man. on this. <laughs> character which is so sad but like, <laughs> i see the whole like the emo hair coming down over the face he's just like the world is against me so i'm gonna be against the and world it's like hey like, man you're so, so rich like you literally you, you've never had a problem in your life you just are sad <laughs> uh I mean, this isn't an an answer, but he is in a tradition of Shakespeare villains who, like, Shakespeare almost seems to intentionally take the motivation away from or take the explanation of their 
motivationally. Because mm-hmm. um, like Iago is the same way in uh, mm-hmm. in the text of Othello, you cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt exactly why Iago decides he hates Othello and needs to take him down. Mm. You can extrapolate some theories that are pretty mm-hmm. compelling, but like uh, in the source material for Othello, the I, I don't know what the source was, but Shakespeare was drawing on a source. And in that, um, in the direct source Shakespeare's drawing on, Iago's motivation is laid out uh, specifically because I think he loves mm-hmm. Desdemona and... Mm. You know, so that's that's his motivation. Shakespeare explicitly surgically removes that explanation from the text of his play um, to make Iago's motivation much more ambiguous. Uh, in fact, I think Iago specifically like says two different contradictory motivations for himself over the course of the play. Uh, and then mm-hmm. um, even in a play like King Lear, for example, like Regan and Goneril... Like, again, you can extrapolate certain motivations for the evil that they do, but, like, it's never explicitly, unambiguously laid out why they they do the horrible things that they do. So it's like, again, I, I don't know how this explains Don John, but he's certainly part of a pattern. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that pattern is certainly there in Shakespeare. I, and I think it... So... When when I first read Much Ado About Nothing, Don John was frustrating in how uh, unequal a match he was to any of the other characters. You know, with with such excellent other characters, especially Beatrice, you want the villain to match. You want the villain to be this soaring intellect who who can uh, combat them, so that you get this glorious Dumbledore versus Voldemort mm-hmm. duel going on. Um, but you know, you can't have that with Don John, so it was very frustrating. But um, Lately, I've come to think about Don John more as uh, a reason for the play to be because with his villainous machinations, you have ultimately much ado about (laughs) nothing. Mm -hmm. There is no much ado about nothing without Don John, right? Yeah, and I think that, that dovetails with my explanation just sort of on like a craft level or a practicality level, which is just that to have a character like Beatrice and even characters like Benedict and Hero and um, you know some of the side characters like you only have so much stage time so if you had that epic clash of of wits Mm. you'd have to give Don John so much more stage time that he would suck some of the oxygen out of the other characters Mm. Um, which is evident in a character like Iago because a lot of people think Iago is the main character of Othello like when when Orson right. Welles, the egomaniac that he was, did a version of Othello, <laughs> he didn't want to play Othello. He wanted to play Iago. Um, so that's what you have if you make Don John, or, or, you know, to use a contemporary example, a lot of people think The Dark Knight is the best Joker movie ever made. <laughs> like, to have a villain that's mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. much of a match for the main character, that's what the play becomes. So I think to have so much life in so many of the other characters and to have them so well-rounded, you almost just needed a two-dimensional plot-causing, uh, conflict-causing... Almost, he, <laughs> he, he comes off like a force of nature, almost. He's mm-hmm. just there to cause conflict mm-hmm. without any motivation other than the causing of conflict. Which, like, that's a that's a really interesting right? use of language, calling him a force of nature in context of, like, the way that Shakespeare uses villains... Of course, I'm thinking about Hamlet. Right. <laughs> um, mm. That they're almost an inevitability. Right. Both their existence, but also overcoming them. Right. I mean, the yeah, and the other thing about about making Don John such so two dimensional is like you could there there could be a commentary on the nature of evil there. Because if you mm. make Don John a match for Beatrice, you're implying mm. sort of a um, Manichaean view of evil, where good and evil are like equal forces. Whereas mm-hmm. a villain like Don John, him being the embodiment of evil in the play, makes evil more like like rot on the underside of a of a log or something, mm. where it's like 
this <laughs> is this is not a force that has as much life or has as much and, and as much as it can you know ruin things and and cause chaos and misery like it doesn't have the strength that the rest of uh, uh the life in the play does yeah all right uh, well, I want to hear uh, any other any other characters or topics. I mean, there are so many other characters that we haven't talked about. You've got Claudio, you've got Leonardo, you've got the Prince, you've got <laughs> Dogberry, uh, and, and all these other other characters. And Hero, we've we've barely touched on too. But, yeah. Okay. Does the Prince actually want to be with Beatrice? Mm. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I want to know. I've seen yeah. it played both ways. Okay. Where where he gives a legitimate proposal to Beatrice. Um, but then I've seen it other ways where he plays it off as a joke. Like they're they're just having this banter. Oh well then yeah. will you marry me? Huh. You know? My interpretation no. has always been that That's, like yeah. basically that possibly from the word go, or at the very least from like the party scene, like the prince always knows that Beatrice is only going to end up with Benedict. And he has this energy of like, well, mm. if Benedict were to die and you still wanted to marry someone, like I'm here, but he's very like self-aware and resigned that like mm. he would be that person, which <laughs> oh, gives him a lot. <laughs> the prince is a tragic character. Yeah. Uh, do we need, do we need to stage a production of Much Ado? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, another sad. We love, we sad love boy. a sad boy. Yeah, it's a play of sad boys. <laughs> Claudio too. And Claudio's a sad boy. Well, that's boy. the thing too. The theme mm. of like love is anybody when they come out sad, they're like, oh, we're in love. <laughs> <laughs> love is sad. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking the the prince is is ultimately the the matchmaker character. Yeah, the yeah. prince is Lydia. So Aww. that's how I've always read it. <laughs> but maybe that's also my particular energy. <laughs> you just read the the text of this play and you visualize yourself as. Prince. Oh, a hundred percent. Also because <laughs> the prince, obviously, <laughs> royalty. That's me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> What else? Claudio, Dogberry, Leonardo. What's your take? I am. Um, this is none of the characters you just listed, but something that I particularly Please. enjoy about this play is the the female friendship. The relationship between Hero and Beatrice mm-hmm. is just so loving and tender, and you love to see it. <laughs> you just love to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do, what do you think of of Hero? She's kind of put up as this um, more uh, like mm. virginal almost type character. I mean, it's explicitly that way too. But uh, she's the she's the the more maybe demure, but um, she does have yeah. a strength as yeah. well. I mean, she could right? disappear into like the uh, uh, what do you like the ingenue type character and just kind of be beautiful mm. and innocent and pure and nothing else but like she's if you think of her that way like she's shockingly eloquent in a bunch of passages and uh-huh. she always is like she doesn't have unless i'm completely blanking on something she doesn't really get any of the comedy but she brings like a gravity to every scene where she speaks that like really grounds everybody else mm-hmm. and makes their their wit and their other shenanigans more um it it heightens the contrast in a way that that helps both both ends uh as well as then of course like Mm -hmm. it sets her up as such a poignant potential victim you know if if you haven't had the 500 year old Mm -hmm. play spoiled for you and you don't know whether she 
Or even if you do, you know, that's obviously the strength of Shakespeare. Like, you can be in the moment with him. And it because she's so uh-huh. eloquent and such a present, you know, character and uh, force, again, almost, like, it, it makes you feel like either Beatrice or Benedict or both when they're enraged that, you know, this has happened. Like, you really feel, in a, in a well-done production, you really feel Beatrice's, like, you feel sympathy for her when she's like, kill Claudio, kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think, right? I think for, sorry. <laughs> I think no, go, for, go for it. a production to make sense, um, Beatrice being such a round, full, interesting character, Hero has to have her own tenacity and humor in the interpretation. Yeah. Um, because she is this mm-hmm. companion to Beatrice. Uh, in my head, she's very much in the same mm-hmm. category as like um, Jane Bennett to Lizzie. Like, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. she's she is a little bit more reserved, more quiet, but there's a reason why she is such a good companion to this um powerful witty intelligent lively woman yeah Mm -hmm. um i would definitely agree with that and i'd also like to add that i think she's uh, Mm. a rock like she she is so sure of herself too i think uh and i i want to point to like two things as Mm -hmm. to why i think that uh and one of them is when she comes out and she's dressed in what she wants to wear. And Margaret's like, you, you might want to change. And she's like, well, this, this is what I'm going to wear. She's like, well, it doesn't look good. She's like, wear this. Like, this is what I want to wear. Leave me alone. Um, and then the other part is when she's being accused by everyone. And she, even the friar says she didn't say anything. Mm. Like, she didn't stand up there and just get really defensive and stuff. She took it and mm. she knows what's true. Mm-hmm. Like she knew what was right and what she did and didn't do. And so she didn't sit there and get the automatic like defensive that mm. some people can get, you know, and just like start firing back. She, she was more, I don't know, I guess strong within herself and knew her own convictions. You mm-hmm. almost, in yeah. fact, it's it can be frustrating because you almost want her to fire back more. Mm-hmm. At the same time as you know, a it probably <gasps> wouldn't do any good, and b it's completely within character for her not to under the circumstances. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting. Right. Yeah, I, that's just to say I agree. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, uh, there's a loyalty mm. to her character mm. too. That uh, really comes through. She's so loyal to Beatrice. And then when she decides that she's going to be matched with Claudio, she's loyal to him too. And so there's a conflict there that he's accusing her. She knows he's wrong, but how can she contradict him when Mm. she's loyal to him? Uh, so I think ultimately, you know, you talk about her strength, you know, the, the fainting damsel in distress is kind of a trope. But I think that's really at the core of why she does faint in that moment is because she's so conflicted between what's true and who she's loyal to. Um, and uh, ultimately coming back around to him, you know, you can you can mock that, you know, after after this guy was so fickle to to accuse her in front of everybody this way, how could she take him back? And that really speaks, I think, to her yeah. character, who she is, um, that she would um, willingly, willingly and and happily join with him again she could be Dwayne the rock johnson in our staging hear me out hear me out there you go (laughs) could be good oh well yeah when you put it that way who who would be beatrice though because she's got to be short no my (laughs) rock on his knees my immediate thought was andre the giant and then i realized rip (laughs) That's not not an option yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no. Too bad. Wow, you really brought the podcast down. 
well, we're <laughs> not, not with, that, <laughs> with, my, with my reference to Andre the Giant who died uh, decades ago. Yeah. Yep. Decades. Well, we're, we're nearing the, the end of our time here, so I want to hear some final thoughts uh, from everyone on <laughs> on this, this play here. <laughs> so, uh, Lydia, would you start us off? Wow. Final, final thoughts. thoughts. It slaps. <laughs> like this discussion. That was, <laughs> that was, hey, that was your first thought. You know thought. what? <laughs> My first thought is usually right, and I stand by it right now. Uh, it slaps. It continues right. to slap. It's very Thank heroic you. of you. Thank you. I, like hero, stand by my convictions. This place laps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Ethan. So final thoughts. This is my favorite Shakespeare comedy. This. That's what I said. You can't say what I said. As You Like It are my two favorite Shakespeare comedies. Also... <laughs> Uh, all's not all's well it ends well. Um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream also. Um, you know four favorite comedies. Get out of here. Well, I was about to say also Love's Labor's Lost, and <laughs> I feel like there's one other that's also my favorite. But um, it's all for different reasons. As you like yeah. it, and Love's Labor's Lost are essentially the closest thing Shakespeare came to writing plays about nothing, <laughs> um, which is my favorite genre of fiction of mm. overall is fiction mm-hmm. about nothing. Um, cause the literal subtitle to As You Like It, and you can look this up, is everyone messes around in the woods for four acts, and then <laughs> the climax happens off stage. <laughs> um, the literal- <laughs> it's true. You know, and, and, uh, Love's Labor's Lost is very similar, it's just four couples that match wits for five acts. Um... Midsummer Night's Dream I love because it is such the paradigm of, like, the classic Shakespeare comedy. Mm. Much Ado stands apart in mm. a way because it's, it is the classic, like Lydia said towards the beginning, that classic Shakespeare comedy stuff of confused identities, um, uh, you know, comedies of errors, uh, that kind of thing. But it's also, like, Shakespeare playing with genre, playing with the light and the dark and not making it purely either one. Um, Joss Whedon, I believe it's been a while since I saw his film version, but I believe he filmed it in black and white Yeah, he did, and just kind of heightens the noir elements. Yep. And that's very much a valid modern reading of what's in this play. And so like, just, it might be when I'm looking at it from the perspective of, Shakespeare's other comedies and then Shakespeare like changing the his own comedy like mixing up his own genre um much, he does that in several of his plays but Much Ado is the only one that's like to me just stellar and and really works as its own mm. its own little world thank you mm-hmm. thank you Risha what are your final thoughts well I don't don't have too much to say um, other than I enjoy it and it's really fun and uh, that there one thing we didn't talk about that I kind of wanted to talk about is how much Beatrice mentions eating and food Uh, and mm -hmm. I want to know more about that so just food for Uh, Um, think about that Very good. Very good. Yes. No, it's that, that's interesting. And uh, you know, when when we think about the we're we're in a weird place with Shakespeare because we've talked a lot about how he wrote for a production and uh you can when but when we come to Shakespeare now it's filled with ambiguities. And so when you think about Shakespeare writing for a specific production, it didn't have necessarily all those same ambiguities because he had to make mm-hmm. directorial decisions about those things. Um, and the act or the actors had to make decisions about those things. So it was very much more concrete uh, at that time. But then the ambiguities there, that's, I feel like, a, a series of doctoral theses um, somewhere someone has done uh, in there, probably. But um, no, so I'm looking forward to, to actually putting on this play and producing it uh, and directing it and, and putting my own decisions, my own interpretations. So I'll decide how right all of you are. 
Um, I have the reins now. Um, <laughs> yes, but no, thank you for for joining me in this conversation. This is this is also uh, my favorite Shakespeare comedy uh, as well, and uh, it's just. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything everyone has said. Everyone is right all the time. And <laughs> yes. How very <laughs> <Yeah>. Midwestern of you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Yay. And uh, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.